guys. Okay. Awesome. Good morning. How's everyone doing? Uh, some of you are all right. Some of you are not so sure. I'm good, uh, which is the main thing because I'm preaching, I guess. But anyway, turn to the person next to you and just give them a good morning high five. And if they look tired, do it to their face, nice and hard. Make sure they're up and ready for the word today. Turn to the person on the other side, your second choice, and say, you look beautiful today. Have you noticed in church, even if it isn't true, you can still say stuff like that because you can say stuff in faith. You know, you can speak stuff out. You look beautiful. I believe in faith that you're going to wake up one day and look more beautiful. Um, But it's so good to be here today. Um, I've had an amazing time so far in New Zealand. Aren't your pastors, Sheridan and Jan, just amazing? Can we honor them right now? It's so good. Well, a lot of love for you guys in the house. I'm guessing most of that's for Jan. I'm guessing. I'm just guessing. No, I'm playing. Um, just the British humor coming through. Uh, we, we're having a great time here, and uh, we love your pastors and got to spend time with them last night. We've been treated so well. Um, we just feel so blessed to be here, and um, this will be the third time I've preached to Activate this morning, and just really enjoying what I'm seeing, and just love connecting with other people, uh, particularly in this part of New Zealand. Um, and Sarah as well. Can we give it up for Sarah over there? She's awesome. And she can sing. She can sing. She can sing. So you're, you've got a dual role as, is that PA and worship leader? We need more Sarahs in the house of God, don't we? We need that. Organized worship leaders, that's what we need. Love that. It's so good. Um, Sarah's kind of been responsible for just making sure that we feel like welcomed, and we really do. So thank you for that. Yesterday, uh, we, we, we've kind of had a crazy week or so. We've been in um, the Southern Hemisphere for a week, landed in Melbourne last Saturday, preached last weekend, and then at Shout Conference in Auckland, and then here this weekend. And yesterday, we rocked up at uh, our hotel that you guys have booked for us. And uh, phenomenally, we never get this in the UK. We've got a double bedroom, and connected to it is a room with three, not two, three single beds right next to each other. God is so good. Like literally our kids ran in. Caleb, our oldest, was like, this is the best day of my life. Because basically it means he doesn't have to go on the inflatable or on the floor, which is our normal practice. So uh, thank you for that. And last night, treated to a remarkable dinner. Had one of the best steaks I've ever eaten, which was so good. Because I think steak comes from New Zealand, doesn't it? Is that right? You guys know how to do it? I think most of the stuff we eat in England is from you guys, but it's about 20 years old by the time we get it. So um, just had an amazing time so far. So thank you for your hospitality and really looking forward to getting into God's word with you this morning. I love the vision of this house and it's such a privilege to be here on the day where you announce such a significant and seismic shift. And if it's okay, rather than just jumping into my preach, I just want to pray over that. Is that all right? Can we pray together just for that this morning? So let's just uh, close out, raise our hands if we uh, do that here and... um, If you don't, then that's cool. But Father God, we just thank you so much, Lord. We believe that this opportunity is from heaven. God, and we believe in by faith today, Lord God, that you're not just going to give us the building, but you're also going to give us the finance and the vision and the wisdom to know how to deck it out, Lord God. Father, we know, Lord, that your heart is for the one who isn't here yet. And Lord, we just pray right now that you would align all of heaven's resources to the leadership and trustee board of Activate Church, Lord God, that they would have more than enough. I pray, Lord God, just like the tabernacle in the Old Testament, where they have to tell people to stop bringing their goods because there's a bountiful supply, Lord. I pray, God, that this would be the first church since that church that would encounter something like that. 
where Pastor Sheridan would have to say, hey guys, you've got to stop giving because there's just too much we don't know what to do. Maybe we should buy another thousand inch screen for the back of the auditorium. Um, But God, I thank you for your goodness, Lord. And I thank you, whatever you start, you always bring to completion. Because unlike most blokes probably in this room, you're not just a starter, you are a finisher. So God, I thank you for your goodness in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Hey, it's so good to be here. Your worship band are amazing. I like came in and I thought, that just sounds so good. I love it when I can hear the church singing loud. I love that. And I walked in and I see that huge, cool screen as well at the back. And uh, anyone play FIFA in you know, football? Anyone? Uh, only one other kind of English person maybe at the back. Actually, aren't you Sheridan's boy? Okay. Well, right now, I grant you British citizenship in Jesus' name. And sometime today, maybe we can get a PS4 and play some FIFA 19 on that screen. That looks... In- hey, open your Bible to Luke 15. We're going to... Um, I'm going to continue in the series that you've been in all year, uh, looking at the life of Jesus from the book of Luke, such a great gospel. And you're in a series called Wherever, Whenever, Be Like Jesus. Uh, it's a great kind of vision, great desire, great ambition. But it's, it's, it's kind of easier to say than it is to do. Being like Jesus is pretty hard. <laughs> I mean, if you didn't get the memo, Jesus is perfect right? And if you look around, we're not so perfect. And um, so on a good day, I'm pretty good at being like Jesus. I've got patience and I'm kind of loving to my kids and I'm long-suffering and I'm gracious and I'm fun and I'm joyful. But on a bad day, uh, not so much like Jesus. I remember a little while ago, I was um, just driving down a busy street near where we live and there was a uh, a car that had just stopped in the middle of the road. They were kind of mid-parking maneuver. And um, I was getting frustrated because I'm a minister of the gospel. and had places to be. I had people to see. I had things to do. Like I'm called like on divine purpose. I don't have time to waste in traffic. I'm better than that. And I do at the time. But this is an old guy just trying to get to the doctors. And I felt awful. So I get into the car. And I didn't realize, but his wife was in the passenger seat and she was sleeping or like in some sort of coma or something. And so I just like let her be. And I thought, well, I'll park this car for him and I could be like Jesus to them. And who knows what's going to happen? Maybe he's going to give his life to Jesus. Maybe he's going to go on an alpha course. Maybe the fire from heaven's going to fall. He's going to start speaking and prophesying in tongues. And it's going to be an awesome story to share. And uh, so anyways, he gets out the car. I jump in the driver's seat. And as soon as I pull forward to get into reverse to go backwards. All the traffic behind me follows suit and comes right up to my bumper. And I think, I don't know what to do now. Like, I can't go back. I can only go forward. Bear in mind, this dude's wife is like in a coma right next to me on this seat. So I I, I think, well, I've just got to drive around the block and come around at this parking space again. So I drive off down the street. I, I see, like, in my mirror, this old dude, Frank, like just literally having a baby. He's like, what? He's waving his cane and all this sort of stuff. And I'm like, this is awkward. I think I'm going to defuse the situation by waving out the window. Like as if I will, I am going to come back. Don't worry. But I think he interpreted that. So he's kidnapped my wife and he's nicked my car. This is a bad day for Frank. Like, see you later, sucker. Um, and uh, oh, thanks, man. I love this church. It's awesome. I need one of those at Sunny Hill. I need a, what's your name? Lance, you can come home with us. That'd be awesome. Um, But it was just so like, so I drive around the corner and uh, I'm just thinking, I'm coming around the block and I'm going to bring the car back to Frank. Can you guess what happens when I get around the corner? All of a sudden, there's a resurrection in the car. This woman, yeah, you know, you know, you know where it's going, right? 
this woman who was comed out like two minutes ago all of a sudden decides to wake up. She wakes up and um, I'm, she, she goes nuts. She's like, what? Where am I? Where's Frank? Where's Frank? And I'm like, that's all right. I'm just helping him park the car. And she gets her stick from down her side and she starts jabbing me in the ribs, man. I mean, I know Jesus said that difficult times would come, but I just wasn't expecting it to come in this force of like a grandma who's got issues with me. Like, and all women can be strong when they want to be, man. I was getting beaten in the car. And I was remember just thinking, driving around, thinking, why do I bother doing this stuff? Why do I try to help people? Because it always backfires in some way. Like, this could have been a miraculous story. I mean, eventually, I, I managed to settle her down. I, put, I said, listen, I'm going to take you back to Frank, and I'm going to get you into that doctor's surgery, and they're going to give you whatever medication you need because you're nuts. Um, but anyway, I'll get them back. But it's, it's kind of so many of my testimonies and stories go that way, where I try to do something good for Jesus, and uh, it just doesn't work out the way I want it to work out. Remember another occasion where I'm driving down a road, same road. I need to stop driving down this road because it's a nightmare. It's about 11 o'clock at night. And uh, as I drive past this guy, God says into my spirit, although I think he did, he says, his name is John and he's got a brain tumor and you need to pray for him. And I'm like, cool. So I'm driving. I'm like, Lord, I just lift up John to you right now in Jesus' name. I speak healing. I prophesy life. I speak future over him. May the tumor fall away in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm feeling good about myself. I prayed. I responded in obedience. And God said, no, you've got to get out of the car, lay your hands on him, and pray for him. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not doing that. It's like 11 o'clock at night. It's like, it's, it's late. Like, you should be in bed, Lord. It's really late. And so anyways, I, I go back home and just literally, I don't know, whether you, have you ever had that kind of conviction before where you just feel like God working on your heart? Just like, come on, get back. So I'm sat on the drive and I'm kind of just tussling with the Lord. I'm like, God, please don't, please don't. And I just feel so strongly, you've got to do it. This is it. This is, this is, this is it. This is it. And so I get in the car and I drive back and I see him again and I slow down. And then I just lose my nerve and I drive off really fast like that. And I just feel like God saying, come on, you wanny, just get up, get up praying for him, just do it. So anyway, I, I go past him about three or four times. At this point, he's freaking out, this dude, because he's like, well, I think I'm going to die today. <laughs> and uh, eventually, on the fifth time, I find him down a side street, because I think he's going a different way home now, because he's trying to hide. And I don't know what kind of came over me, but I knew I needed to stop him, and I, need, I knew I needed like an irreversible maneuver. I needed to do something that meant I couldn't back out of this moment. So I did what all cop cars do in American movies, and I just mounted the path, the curb, right in front of him. As he's walking, I just like, wow, bang on the thing. And I'm like totally committed now, thinking I've got to do something. And I can see he's kind of stepping back as in, I'm going to get killed. Like, this is crazy. And I get out, and, and I just go for it. I say, is your name John? And he says, No. I was taken aback because God had so laid it on my heart or so I thought, I was convinced this was going to be a New York Times bestseller story. Like I'd be at me, me and John would go around the world touring the stadium, sharing this testimony about how I pulled up and prayed for him and the tumor just fell off his head. I don't really know what happens when it falls and he just hits the deck on his knees and he's in tears repenting before God and like the fire of heaven falling and, you know, helping him up. And we set up a ministry together called Stand Against Brain Tumors and we just go around the world and we, we just see multiple people saved. That's how it played out in my head. But here I am in this moment. Is your name John? No kidding me right now. All right, have you got a brain tumor? 
I said, I hope not. <laughs> um, can I pray for you? No chance. <laughs> I was livid. I was like, Lord. Like every time I tried to make a stand or do something for you, it never seems to work out. In fact, that would be true in my life. About 80% of my attempts for God really come to nothing. But 20% do. And it's kind of interesting that on the way home, I was driving, Lord, why, why, why would I feel that conviction so hard in me to do something? And I felt God say to something in my spirit, which has always shaped my thinking since, which is this. It's still obedience. You see, sometimes we have to understand we have to do the ridiculous to see the miraculous. So often we just want to kind of the, the predictable, normal steps of Christianity and just have a 100% track record, and that's cool. But sometimes, actually, we have to step out of the boat, like Pastor Sheridan was saying. Sometimes we have to work against logic, reason, rationale, and do something that doesn't seem sensible. Because actually, that's the realm of the miraculous. And I, and I find the more and more I step out and do stuff which kind of seems kind of crazy on the outside, the more and more I see God step in and do profound things. You see, if you want to commit your life to being a true disciple of Jesus Christ, then it requires an all or nothing, wherever, whenever, be like Jesus kind of spirit. It means that when you go to school, you're going to behave differently. When you go to work, you're going to speak about the boss differently. It means when you're stuck in traffic, you're going to respond to the old man in front with his woman in a coma differently. Because being like Jesus wherever, whenever, is kind of contrary to what your flesh wants to do most of the time. But that's the realm where miracles play out. Amen? Open your Bible to Luke 15. Should be on the Bible in the sky. Oh, brilliant. There we go. Can we give the tech team a round of applause? We love you guys. I like to do that. You're getting a good whoop there. Whoop, whoop. You guys are brilliant. Thank you for your service to Activate Church. And everyone else who served this morning, thank you. Luke 15, we read this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. I love this. I love this because I think sometimes maybe we think Jesus is kind of like this, so perfect that he just hovers into a room kind of scenario. That everyone who doesn't know him just kind of just are immediately aware of their brokenness and just their, the chaos in their world. But actually, as Jesus is speaking, there's so much life in his words that he's drawing those who are far away. They're coming, these tax collectors and sinners, the marginalized and outcasted by societies are coming to listen to Jesus. It's incredible. But verse 2, we see something interesting. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered. In other words, they complained. What was their complaint? This man, Jesus, welcomes sinners and eats with them. Jesus was cultivating an invitational life. A life where you didn't have to be perfect to engage with him. A life where he would sit at the table with those that other people wouldn't speak to. Just as an aside, and uh, I'm really aware of time. How long have I got? What time do I have to be finished? Two hours. Two hours, you said. Great. Awesome. You're the husband of the Welsh lady, so I like you a lot. Because the more Welsh people we can get out of Britain, the better. No, I'm, I'm playing. I'm, I'm, play, I'm playing. I'm playing. Welsh people have a great sense of humor. So, I've got a Mitsubishi Outlander out there. You slash those tires. That's yours, right? That's awesome. Welsh people can be rough when they want to be. Now we love Welsh people. All single nine of them. Now the text collectors. I'm playing. And since we're gathering, it's interesting that the Pharisees' complaint was this. He's inviting sinners, marginalized, outcasts, and he's 
eating with them. In this context, eating was a sign of acceptance. It was a sign of welcome. I was saying to Pastor Sheridan last night that like, we've had some really interesting research in our country, in England, which is like this. Of 50,000 people that were brand new to Jesus, this is how they ended up getting saved. 2% of them uh, came to church because of a uh, social media campaign. 6% came to church because of an alpha course. And then some of that, 2% came by pastoral invitation. But 85% of these 50,000 people came to church and got saved simply because somebody invited them. Like, I, I don't know, the, I, I'm guessing it's probably quite similar because what I'm learning about New Zealand is that we're quite similar in many ways. That 85% of the 50,000 people who had come to know Jesus had simply come to know Jesus because they're in the right place at the right time. Because some believer somewhere in the world decided whenever, wherever, I'm going to invite my world into the house of God. And they encountered the goodness of God. Now, that's an amazing stat. But there's something even more scary than that. The same statistic suggested this. Only 2% of people who go to church invite people to church. Jesus had learned the power of invitation, the power of welcome. And here, with those that society had written off, Jesus had chose to make his dinner table with those who were marginalized and outcasted. So the first thing I kind of want to say is if you want to be like Jesus wherever, whenever, it means you need to start eating with tax collectors and sinners. Sometimes we become too churched. We get into the church world and we only have church friends and we only have church hobbies and we only have church activities. And that is so important to have those things in our world because Christian community builds us, it edifies us. But if we cut ourselves off from the people that God is proactively trying to reach, then how is he going to do it? And so it's interesting, they complain, this man welcomes and eats with tax collectors and sinners. They've got such a short memory, these Pharisees. Kind of interesting. You know, we often give the Pharisees a hard time. In fact, yesterday, uh, me and my family, my wife is at the back there. Is she still there in the corner? Ah, stand up, Louise. Give everyone a wave. Hey! Got to do a little dance? Ah, nice dance. Doing the Macarena for you, living the dream. Awesome. Yesterday, I mean, she's an amazing woman. She leads church with me. Um, We were driving yesterday from Auckland, and our boys were fighting in the back. I mean, our boys are like, Jesus Mark II. They don't normally fight. It's really rare. Not. You put them in a car and they'll fight about anything. And it's kind of interesting because Judah expressed some hatred for something. He said, I hate something. And Caleb said, you're not allowed to hate, are you, dad? I was like, no, that's right. And Caleb says, you're only allowed to hate two people. And I was intrigued straight away. I was like, "Uh, who's this then? And he says, Satan. And I'm like, yeah, fair enough. That's cool. It's a good place to aim aim all your blame. And, uh, and he said, and the Pharisees. <laughs> what kind of child is this? Where have you learned that child? I think just like somewhere along the line, he's been in church for so long that he's just heard Pharisees get run down by the preachers, that he thinks that Jesus hates them. But actually, we couldn't be further from the truth. In Luke 14, jump back one chapter, look at this. So Luke 15, verse 1, he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. In Luke 14, verse 1, listen to this. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, in the house of a prominent Pharisee, sometimes we think like Jesus didn't have any time for the religious. Now, don't get me wrong. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were a hurdle to the ministry of Jesus because they couldn't comprehend the goodness of God and the the grace of God. Yet make no mistake about it. Jesus loves the Pharisee as much as he loves the sinner. 
Jesus loves the religious person as much as he, he loves the down and out. Jesus is love. It says that in the epistle of John. God is love. And so if, if dinner and eating together and fellowship is a sign of invitation and welcome, then Jesus extends it as much to the Pharisees as he does to the tax collectors and sinners. In fact, in Luke 13, Jesus says this to the prominent leaders of his day. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets... In other words, you who are kind of responsible for kind of slaying loads of men of God, he says, how I longed to gather you in like a mother hen gathers in her chicks. Yet you were not willing. Jesus was willing. The Pharisees were not willing. And so the Pharisees have this short kind of memory in this moment. They're like, I can't believe this guy eats with the tax collectors and sinners. Well, actually, just yesterday, Jesus was eating with one of yours as well. Why? Well, Jesus goes on and responds to their complaint. Jesus says uh, in verse 3, Jesus told them this parable. And normally, we break this story that Jesus uh, speaks into three different preaches. We talk about the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. But actually, it's one story in three parts. And they're all important to kind of understand what Jesus is really getting at here. So what time did you say I need to finish? I ignored it completely. Okay, 10 minutes. Okay. So Jesus says, suppose one of you has 100 sheep. Now, you, you guys know all about sheep, don't you? You love it, right? Is that, is that a... You've got 30 million sheep. That's so greedy. It's so greedy. 30 million sheep. Is it offensive here to say that you love sheep? Because I felt like there was a gasp in the room when I said that. I don't know. I thought it would be something you wear like a badge of honor. Like, that's a cool thing. I've got nothing against sheep. I like sheep. They're not bad at all. Boom. Right. Just saying... Then Jesus told him this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep. Now, you can all relate to this, I'm sure, because probably most of you are at least a thousand sheep if you've got six, six million. Thirty million. Flip. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? Whenever we read that, we just assume that Jesus has been really straight with them. Like this is a common practice for a shepherd to do, to leave 99 in open wild country to go and look for a sheep that has wandered away. Now, I'm sure you know this, and if you do love sheep, I apologize, but sheep are dumb. They are dumb. They're stupid things. Like, I've, I've tried kind of going into a field, and they're just, they're just weird animals. They're just like a will of their own. Like, I remember walking through with Caleb one time in a little field in Cornwall, and then all of a sudden, a hundred bolted for us. And like, I don't know whether it's the same as a grizzly bear scenario, where you make yourself big or something. But I didn't have to do anything because as soon as they got 30 foot away, they just bolted in another direction. Like, what are these sheep about? But, but in this moment, one's gone wandering and yet the shepherd has left the 99. Now, this wasn't a common practice for shepherds. Now, this is the heart of what Jesus is saying. It's not normal to do that. It's not normal to leave 99 in wild country and look for one that got out. Like, sure, you would have a quick look and go, where is it? Can you see it? But actually, Jesus says... He goes and searches for the lost sheep until he, pardon, finds it. Like that bit's really important. This shepherd is not giving up the search. Could have been a day, could have been a week, could have been a month, who knows. But that shepherd was not going home without that sheep. Now verse 5, when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. I would never do that, dirty animals, and goes home. Then he calls his friend and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. Interesting. Have you guys ever had that? 
where a neighbor comes and knocks on your door in the middle of the night, hey, good news, yesterday I lost a sheep, but I found it. You'd be like, see you later, loser. I don't know what you're talking about. Or you wouldn't, because Jesus wouldn't say that either. You'd say, let's talk about the gospel, you know. But it's kind of interesting that Jesus is saying, listen, this shepherd goes and looks for it, and then when he finds it, gets everyone to rejoice, and then he brings the parallel. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents, over one sinner that comes back, over one sinner. Right now, what I'm trying to do is speak to your spirit about the mandate on you as a church to get you to lift your eyes above the church bubble just for a moment. I tell you that in the same way, there'll be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 self-righteous people who do not need to repent. Like literally, heaven could be busy one day, but as soon as one broken person takes the knee and receives Christ as their Savior, heaven stops in their tracks and parties like crazy. That is so cool. Like, can you put those fireworks again on that cool thing? I've never seen that in a church. I was like, can you put it on? Oh, yeah. Right now, when one person receives Christ, boom heaven responding in party. Who knows? We need to recover some of that party in church, right? Sometimes we're too solemn and somber. Like, uh, oh, someone got saved. Oh, that's really cool. As Pastor Sheridan, was it in this meeting where he did a little cricket clap? Uh, oh, yeah, that's really good, yeah. No, this is mental. One person was going to hell. But yet in this moment, they've responded to Jesus, and now their destiny has been forever changed. This one sheep that had wandered away in their dumbness and silliness and foolishness, yet the goodness of God has hunted them down and chased them down, and now they've come to know Jesus as the Savior. That's the kind of church we need, one that doesn't know an end to the rejoicing that's happening because there's so many people getting saved on a daily basis. That's the future of Activate. Come on. You can give the Lord a round of applause. I'm loving that. I want that at my church at home. That is so cool. You should have proper fireworks, actually. That would be really good. Pyrotechnics going here. Every time someone gets saved, (sighs) worship leaders getting hot feet. You know, it'd be awesome. Jesus goes on with the story. He says, suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Now, listen, you may be Kiwi, but if you can't relate to sheep, you all like money, right? Because you're human, right? So maybe you relate more to this. Suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? Again, no, not really. Like this silver coin that probably sounds like it's got huge value, monetary-wise, actually translates as drachma, and scholars kind of say the most it would have been is $100 tops, but the least it would probably would have been 50 cents. Like, so if you've got like $100 and you lose like $10, you might look for it for a bit, but you're not going to like, really tear the house upside down. Some translations say that she shifted furniture, turned things upside over in order to find this money. It's kind of funny because when she finds it, verse 9, she calls her friends. Can you get the fireworks ready again? Right? A neighbor together and says, rejoice with me. That's what it's supposed to be. Boom, rejoice with me. Come on. I found the coin. It's all good. And the neighbor's like, what the heck are you talking about? I would have given you a coin. She said, no, 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 we're going to party. We're going to get some like nachos and dip and we're going to get a really cool room at the Distinction Hotel and get three single beds for all the children 
and they're going to give out free chocolates if it's your birthday, and it's going to be an incredible party. In other words, the expense she's going to pay on the party was more than the money she lost. Interesting. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Because the interesting thing with this money is even if it's worth $10 or $100, the monetary value really doesn't matter. All that matters is the value that this woman assigns to the coin that she's lost. In the same way, it doesn't matter how you see yourself. Maybe you didn't make it at school. Maybe you didn't make it at work. Maybe you drop out. Maybe you're on kind of social benefit, whatever it may be. Maybe other people don't assign value to you. Maybe your parents have never spoken value over you. Maybe you've never spoken value over yourself. But Jesus says, hey, the father is like this woman who loses something that is of huge value to her, and she will not relent until she recovers that which is lost. Now, just in case you're not getting the picture of the sheep, And the money, Jesus gets more intense now and he introduces this idea of family. He says, listen, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. In other words, you're getting old, but you're not old enough. It's going to be a while till you die. So please, can I get my inheritance early? And the father didn't kick him in the face like I would have. The father did this. He divided his property between them, 50-50, older son, younger son. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. So he took his father's hard-earned money and just blew it on crazy wild living. After that, he had spent everything. There was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. He couldn't have preempted the famine. He couldn't have predicted it, but yet here it is. The famine's coming. Oh, the keyboard is coming up. She's awesome. Can we give her a round of applause? Amazing. And it's good news for you because that basically means I've got 10 minutes left to land this plane. That's what that means. If you ever wonder, when the keyboard gets up, you've got 10 minutes left, okay? So no worries. Someone at the back there, he's dying up there. Send the keyboard up right now. So it's kind of interesting. He spends all he's had. Then there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country. Right, so he's going to hire out his services to an alien of the land. Bearing in mind, he was from a Jewish context. He had estate. He had inheritance. He was all good. Now he's going to hire his services out to an alien, a foreign person. And it gets worse. He went and hired himself out to a citizen of that foreign country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. You should hate pigs because they're not sheep. They're the enemy of New Zealand, right? But in the Jewish context, they're the most unclean animals. And now here we are, this young son who has squandered all his wealth is hiring out his services to a foreigner and not just kind of washing the dishes. He's actually feeding pigs, Jewish unclean animals. Didn't eat pork, according to the law of God. Didn't eat it. And there he is, and he gets worse. Verse 16, he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. It's like in that moment, in that story, I just want to jump into this dude's world and I'll be like, don't you dare eat that pig food. Don't you dare do it. Doesn't matter how good it is. Doesn't matter how good it looks. Listen, you were destined for way more. You're actually, have you forgotten? You're, You're from your father's house. Like you had authority, you had finance, you had responsibility, you had influence, you had an amazing life. Don't you dare eat that pig food. The, the, the challenge is we have churches of people eating pig food. 
They're eating from a place that God never destined them to eat from. Drawing from a food supply and a water supply that isn't bringing sustenance and life. It's just building an ongoing, unending dependence on rubbish that you were never built to feed on. And so in this moment, I'll say, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. And it says this in verse 17. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. In other words, the lowest in my dad's house has a better existence than me. I will set out and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So I just get this moment, and I don't know if you've ever done this, where you have a revelation and you, you build a speech about, when I get back, this is what I'm going to say to him. This is what I'm going to do. And so he's building this speech. You know, I'm, I'm unworthy. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I'm just happy to be a servant in your house. Just please take me back. And so he gets up and goes to his father. But while he was still a long way off, and sometimes when we read this, we just think it's like the father standing at the gateway of his, of his home estate and he just sees his son in the distance. And it's, it's a cool Hollywood moment because it's kind of like just magical, isn't it? Just like on the edge of my kind of estate. But in the original text, it's implying another land. Like, so the father sees the son thousands of miles or hundreds of miles away in another country which implies that it wasn't just the son that was searching for his father's house. It was the father searching for his son. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and just totally broke with protocol of the day. In a dignified patriarchal society where fathers were seen as disciplinarians and teachers, didn't really embrace their children, didn't really pick up their children, never really ran to their children. This is what happened. Filled with compassion for him, he ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. Broke with every protocol of reason, rationale and logic. I'm so pleased, aren't you, that God is nothing like me? Because on a bad day, I can hold a grudge all day long. I'd be like, who do you think you are coming back now? Now you're out of money. You want more money? Bog off. Go away. But this father is proactively searching for this child. It would have been so hard for people listening in the crowd to fully comprehend what Jesus is saying. Because this is why Jesus is eating with the tax collectors and sinners. I've come not for the healthy, but for the sick. I've not come for those who have it all together. I've come for those who are broken and in their chaos have wandered away. And I proactively search. And when I see them, I run to them and I embrace them and I kiss them. And the son kind of gets into his message. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father kind of interrupts him and says, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fat calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Can I have the fireworks on the screen, please? And the pyrotechnics now? Oh, they must be broken. The pyrotechnics aren't working anymore. Sorry, shame. It's kind of interesting to me. Because the way we always see this story play out is in your Bible, you might even have a subheading called the prodigal son. And we've got that slide up there. The message is called prodigal. Because prodigal, we typically mean, prodigal means like someone who is in sin, someone who is lost. So this son was lost. So he's the prodigal son. Or sometimes maybe we think the prodigal is someone who comes back, the, the one who goes, but then comes back. But actually, prodigal doesn't mean that at all. Prodigal means reckless. In other words, this this sheep that had recklessly wandered away, this coin that had recklessly hidden itself, this 
child who had recklessly gone to his father, asked for his estate, and then squandered it on wild living. Like, the son is reckless, right? But I want to say, I'd like to rename this story and call it the prodigal father. The prodigal dad. The shepherd that would leave the 99 for the one, the woman who would turn the house upside down for the one coin, the father who would leave his father's estate and search out the one who has wandered away. Do you know God's love for you this morning is prodigal? It is reckless towards you. He didn't withhold anything in winning you back to himself. Do you know today that when God sent his son to the cross, he didn't have 10 up there that he could have sent, Kevin, Gary, Roger, and Jesus. It was just Jesus, his one and only son. We talk about prodigal heart. It's not the son, it's the dad. It's the dad. I mean, it's a weird thing to think Roger would never have worked as a son of God name, would it? Roger, <laughs> I name him Roger Christ, savior of the world. <laughs> Gary. Just the, song, the worship songs wouldn't sound anywhere near as good if you were singing to Gary, would they? Let's be honest about it. But it's just interesting to me because the more I walk with Jesus, the more I see this in my life that God is so prodigal towards me. He has been so, so, so good to me that even when I don't deserve it, even when I cannot earn it, which is all the time, by the way, because I have more bad days than good days, God's heart is still totally focused and pursuing my heart day in, day out. I didn't do this in the last service. Can I share my testimony briefly and then I will finish, I promise. I promise, promise, you have my word. When I was... Lights on. Man, you've got an amazing team. <laughs> Try and find me. You tried as well. What a legend. You know, it's kind of interesting because when I was a teenager, I'd wandered so far from God. Like, I just, I, my, my, my dream was to be a rock star. That was the dream. I just wanted to be a rock star. Like, I, I, I didn't care where it would take me. I just was not interested in God. To me, I'd been put off by the religious kind of thing of church, and it just was boring and just didn't seem to be filled with any life or vision. And so I wandered away, and I was looking for life, and I found it in, like, rock music and having community with these people. And on a regular basis, we would just get high and get drunk, and it was cool, and it was fun. I remember one day, we got so high at college that we went back to the careers advisor's office, um, somebody who tries to help disenfranchise young people make sense of their future. I remember going back to the careers advisor's office and as a bit of fun, me and my like three or four friends from my band, we sat down at the table and we went through the prospectus, like the the place where all the colleges and universities, and we went to the religious um, section just for a laugh and we applied to become imams, rabbis, like Buddhist leaders, Buddhist monks, uh, Christian priests. Like we just applied to it all just because we thought it was funny. We didn't really have a good sense of humor, but at the time we were cracking up. This is so funny. Imagine him as an imam. That's funny. Like we were just writing all this down and sending it all off. That was like the Monday or Tuesday. On the Friday, one of my friends embodied this wherever, whenever, came to me and he says, oh, you need to come to this meeting tonight. There's an evangelist in town. Now I knew enough churchy words to know that I wouldn't want to go like an evangelist basically just means old and loud, like in my mind. And, and so I wasn't interested. And so anyways, he just pestered me and like, just like Jesus being the prodigal, pursued me, pursued me, pursued me. To the point, okay, Simon, just shut up. I'll come. And I remember sat, being sat at the back of this auditorium and this old dude was preaching. He was definitely over a hundred. He was like Abraham Mark II. He was just old and he was loud. And I was bored out my face and I kept looking at my clock thinking there's got to be a party happening tonight somewhere. Um, I just wasn't prepared for what kind of party it would be. 
And just as he gave an auto call response, I thought, oh, this is awkward. I feel sorry for this preacher because people aren't going to respond. Quite a few people started coming out of their chairs and their seats and started responding to the good news. And I felt literally God say into my spirit in that moment, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. I've literally felt the voice of God just speak into the deepest part of who I am. Today is the day of salvation. And I, I kind of processed it and I thought, well, maybe it's for everyone else. And I felt God say, get off your seat and get down to the front. And so I left the back of the auditorium and I walked. I walked to the front kind of reluctantly, unwillingly, but I was just trying to stop this voice inside of me talking to me. And as I got about 30 foot away from the altar where everyone else was like getting prayed for, it felt like I walked through an invisible wall to this point where I was totally in despair and depressed and discouraged. I walked into this, just by one step, walked into a place where I felt the manifestation of the goodness and grace of God. And in that moment, I felt such the love of God on my life that I just fell to my knees and I was in tears and I was crying because in this moment, I just started to repent and pour my heart out. And I was like, God, I don't know what's going on right now, but I've never experienced anything like this before. But I just get this sense that you love me. And and it was so wrong because... All I'd done for the last few years was sing songs about God not existing and God hating people and all this sort of stuff. And I'd kind of squandered everything that was put in me as a child on wild living. But in this moment, I stepped through this invisible wall and I just felt the goodness of God so heavy on my life that I couldn't get low enough to the ground. I was literally like my face was on the ground to the point where I just lied down because I couldn't escape this. And I was there for like half an hour, 45 minutes to an hour. And I got up. And this woman came and prophesied over me. And she says, listen, God has been pursuing you. And I was like, you got the wrong GPS. It's not me. I'm not worthy to be called a Christian. I'm not worthy to be called God's son. And she says, God's got a call on your life. And you're going to be a leader. And you're going to see many thousands of people get saved. And I'm like, you got the wrong person. You have got the wrong person. I'm a waster. Like, I haven't done anything good in my life. And all of a sudden, she says, I feel like God's saying you need to go to Bible college. I'm like, Bible college? Is that a thing? Like, who gets to do that with their life? Like, Bible college? And it's so interesting that I went back home and I just processed everything. And my encounter was so real and so tangible that I couldn't deny it. And over the weekend, I just remember opening my Bible, trying to make sense of all that had happened and just thinking, what do I do about this Bible college thing? And on Monday morning, an envelope came through the letterbox at my mom and dad's house and I opened it and it was a prospectus for a Bible college in the south of England. I was like, what? I looked at the cover and there was a windsurfer on the cover. And at that point, I was sold. I was like, all right, I'm in. (laughs) Right now, I live in a stinky city in Birmingham. There's no beach here. There's a beach there. Lord, I'm going. Do you know what is so amazing about God? He was pursuing me even when I didn't know it. Even in my drunkenness on the previous Tuesday, I applied to go to Bible college with my friends in the careers advisor's office. That I thought my life was all about this, but even in my brokenness and chaos, God still had me in his hands. And he was bringing me back into his purposes and his plans for my life, which is probably why now I can't stop talking about the goodness of God and it would appeal to anybody in this room who doesn't know Jesus as their saviour, that today can be the day of salvation for you, because let me tell you, I promise you this, there is nothing special about me, in fact you can see there's nothing special about me, 
there is nothing special about me. All I am is a normal person who made an absolute mess of his life and God in his goodness set his face towards me and for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame for me. That when this old person preached and I felt the inclination of God, I got out my seat and walked. And then when I got to this point, I was undone by the goodness of God. And I got up that day and I didn't realize that the rest of my life would look different. You give Lord a round of applause. Amazing. Boom. I want so many of your people. I just want to take them all. Take them all. I don't know why I'm going to like... Ah, come with me. I don't know why I do that, but it, it is what it is. My, my, I, I guess I want to just implore two things to you. First of all, if you know Jesus is your Savior today, then you have been called to give your life to searching for the ones who don't know Jesus yet. Bottom line, it seems weird to send a mandate on the church out on you to go and be prodigals, because for us, prodigals is negative. Go and be prodigals in the world, but no, be prodigals in the world. Give your time recklessly to people who don't deserve it. Give your money. Give your life extravagantly to the purposes of God. Go and do it. Spend your life on the things that matter to God, on the people that matter to God. Don't just play church. Don't just play careers. There's something bigger that we're doing here. This is all part of the vision that Sheridan and Jan carry so deeply in their heart with the leadership of this house to build this one campus community that is seeing impact across the city. It's a phenomenal vision. And as the people of God, we should pray, pray, like put all of our prayers behind this, push this thing forward. And we should pray as though it all depends on God, but we should live as though it all depends on us. Begin to open our wallets to sow into the ministry, to begin to serve like we've never served before because Jesus gave himself to come for the one who didn't know Jesus yet. And so as believers, if we're really going to be like Jesus wherever, whenever, then it's time for us to rise up and become like him. And second of all, if you don't know Jesus as your savior this morning, I want to say that you can simply just make a step today that could change the course of your destiny forever. Do you know God is more concerned with your destiny than your history? Do you know that? Some of you need to get past your past. Like you, you, you're stuck in a place and a moment in your life where something maybe you've done that was bad or something that somebody did that was bad to you and you're stuck there. But God is calling you to a glorious inheritance. And it doesn't matter what you've done at this point. It doesn't matter if you squandered the wealth. It doesn't matter if you used to come to church, but now you've kind of been rejecting the goodness of God. Listen, today's the day of salvation. Don't be like the Pharisees. Maybe you're religious today and you're cold and you're thinking, oh, there's something warming up inside of me. It's called the Spirit of God is speaking to you. But make sure that you're willing today. Don't be unwilling like the Pharisees. Be willing to be drawn in by the goodness of Jesus. And so I just want to pray for you. If that's you today, every head bowed, every eye closed. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior today, I'm not going to call you down the front, although you can do that if you want. I just want you to raise your hand where you are right now. And I want to pray for you right now. It doesn't have to be awkward. It doesn't have to be weird. We try to do this often at church. And sometimes many people respond. Sometimes nobody responds. But it's part of our responsibility to make a moment and create a moment for you to step into eternity. So if that's you this morning, if you want to respond to the good news of Jesus Christ, maybe you've been wandering away. Maybe you grew up as a Christian, but you turned your back on him. Or maybe you've never called on the name of Jesus. Well, today is the day of salvation. If you want to put that right this morning, then with every head bowed, every eye closed, just raise your hand where you are now. Praise God. Praise God. So good. 
Okay, I've seen two hands so far, which is amazing. Amazing. Praise God. It is the best decision you'll ever make. Sometimes we can't conceive what God is calling us into, but let me tell you, better are the days before you than behind you. God has got so much for you. I want to pray for you, but um, Father, I thank you for my brothers and sisters who raise their hand. I thank you this morning that they are choosing to believe Jesus, that you are searching for them. Lord, there's nothing complex about this. The word just says that we're to confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. So everyone in this moment, just say, Jesus is Lord. And to believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. That's all it takes to take that step and decision for Jesus Christ. Jesus, we believe that you are Lord today. And we believe in our heart that God, you raised Jesus from the dead. Father, I thank you for those who have responded. And we just pray your richest blessing on them as they start out on this journey. May they go from glory to glory, strength to strength, Lord. May they just know an unparalleled blessing on their life, like the sheep that was found, the coin that was recovered, and the son that came home to being embraced and kissed by their heavenly Father. Lord, I just pray, Father, that you would do that this morning in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Hey, three people responded. So what does that mean we do? Let's stand to our feet. Come on, stand to our feet. Give the